Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, this is our 32nd anniversary as a congregation. We thank God that he has allowed us to exist this long and to thrive and to be something of a witness of who he is to our community. We're very, very grateful. And during this month, we have the privilege of having people who have given some significant contributions to our history, our present, and we believe will for our future. Today, we have Pastor Rice Brooks. Pastor Rice, um, well, let me ask, have you seen the movie God's Not Dead? <clears throat> Pastor Rice wrote the book upon which the movie was based. He's an amazing man. And I've had the privilege of knowing him for the past 35 years. We've walked together that long. 33 for me. He's been in ministry for 35. He actually led the outreach to Indiana University where I was a student, upon which I got saved. He didn't preach to me because he was gone by then, but people stayed, and I got right with God as a result of his influence. He is the founder of Every Nation Ministries, Every Nation Churches. That's the organization under which we find a home as a congregation. And without that organization, we would not be who we are. I realize you don't see every nation every week except by seeing me or seeing people who in the church talk about our conferences. But we are who we are in large part because of this organization that helps us and supports us and gives us vision and instruction about how to do what we need to do better. Now, without them, we would still be, but we wouldn't be who we are. I'm grateful for Rice's founding. On top of that, he had a master's, got a master's from Reformed Theological Seminary, got his doctorate from Fuller Theological Seminary, and he is the pastor, leading, how do we describe it, senior minister of Bethel World Outreach Center in, in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of Change the Campus, Change the World, and that beautiful purple book that you all have done, or will do, it's a foundation for really how we live our Christian lives and understanding what the Bible has to say in a rudimentary way for us. He wrote that. He is significant in our history, and we love him. On top of that, he's father of five, has a beautiful wife. He's a great dad, a great husband, and a great friend. Please, church, will you welcome him on our 36-second anniversary? Pastor Rice Brooks. Thank you, Pastor Red. Thank you so much. Well, good afternoon. Let's see, I think that the 1 o'clock service or 12, y'all are the smartest people in the church. I'm going to tell you right now. I would totally sleep as late as I could on Sunday, DVR the game, or get out here at halftime. See, it's just a brilliant, I know, so I've, I can really upgrade what I'm going to say because I know I have a higher, higher IQ collectively because of uh, you being here right now. I love Pastor Red Cynthia. Thank you for 30 plus years of friendship. Uh, I, when I first met Pastor Red, I was always on the front row. If he was speaking, I'd be you know, whispering to him, sing, sing something. He said, I don't want to sing. I, 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 he kind of reminded me of a young Lou Rawls back in the day. I don't know if y'all remember Lou Rawls. That was... That's how far back I go anyway. But, uh, you know, I am honored. Uh, I was introduced the other day as this is Dr. Rice Brooks, author of the book, God's Not Dead Yet. Oh, I got up and I think, well, he sounds like he's sick, you know, God's not dead. 
But um, yeah, I was actually writing this book called God's Not Dead. Uh, this is how simple things can be. Riding down the road, telling a friend of mine, he said, that needs to be a movie. He calls the movie company. They come to Nashville, sit with me, and I describe the drama that's going on on a college campus and the battle for faith, and they put this movie together. And uh, my friend wrote the check for the movie, which is the smartest check he ever wrote, and uh, it's done real well in the box office. I've had the privilege of being everywhere with it. I'll go Tuesday to Cape Town for a, a God's Not Dead event. I've been in London, Australia. It's all through Latin America. Uh, it's, what it's really doing is it's opening a door of discussion. You know, if people say to you, well, there's no evidence for God, then all you have to have is a little bit, and that changes the game. So Romans says that God's nature and attributes are clearly seen being demonstrated through that which has been made. So what happens is people don't really understand what they're looking for. So that's the essence of my message today. Uh, let's bow and pray, and then I'm going to have you turn to our text. Father, thank you so much for this moment that we have once again to open your word, to speak to people. May this message today be eye-opening. And may we realize our responsibility to go out and open others' eyes to the truth. We don't say that arrogantly or triumphantly, but we say that uh, in response to knowing that your gospel is true. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, if you are the way, there is no the way. And Lord, we put our trust in you. We know the voices of reason, the voices of saying, this is the way, this is what you should listen to. But Lord, because of your resurrection, we know that your voice is the supreme voice to trust. And we put our trust in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 26 verse 18. Well, actually, let's go to verse 15. I always got to be careful because when I start kind of backing up a verse, I'll end up back in Genesis because it's all good. But um, anyway, the Apostle Paul, most of us know who that is if you're uh, new to the Bible. This is one of the great spokespersons of the Christian faith. He had been an antagonist uh, against Christianity in its beginning, and yet something happened to him that changed things. He encountered Christ in a very dramatic way on this road uh, to Damascus, Syria. Light blinds him, and he tells this story several times, and this is a, an account of Paul telling his own story. And he said that he's, you know, he's, here's this voice, and here's what the voice says to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus. He said, who are you, Lord, rather? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now watch this. He says, but rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your own people, in other words, some of them aren't going to like it, and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. And so I want to capture that phrase for us today. Paul was told, I'm sending you to open their eyes. Now, again, that can sound almost arrogant, like, well, let me open your eyes. But literally, that's the process that happens when truth is communicated or the process to which 
the lack of truth or deception is communicated. In other words, knowledge is disseminated and you're either going to have your eyes open to good or evil. In the very beginning, God uh, forbid, he said, don't touch this tree. It was not an apple tree. Uh, it certainly wasn't some of the things that people have suggested. The original sin was, you know, you know something like uh, physical. No, it was, it was knowledge. It was the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? It says their eyes were opened. Remember that? Now, they already had the knowledge of good. Because everywhere you looked, God said, it's good, it's good, it's good. So it wasn't that they lacked the knowledge of good. What they really lacked was the knowledge of evil. And God said, you don't need to know that. God did nothing more than what you and I as good parents do when we put a filter on our internet search. We know that our kids don't need to be responsible and, oh, well, how will they ever know unless they experience it? We know there's certain things they just don't need to know about. And advertisers and, and people of, of dark motives and, 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 and very diabolical motives know that if they can open someone's eyes to a world, then they'll have them. Yeah. I remember as an 11-year-old boy, uh, someone, someone telling me about, about sex, but doing it in not in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way like it should be told, but it was a very twisted way, something that made me feel bad. Made me just look. I, I remember when, I, as an eleven-year-old boy, hearing this story and hearing it told through this person who wanted to kind of twist my wiring, and they opened my eyes, not just to the reality of the of the physical world between ma- you know male and female, but also it was just done in a perverse way, and it was like opening my eyes to something wrong. You see, we can see it very clearly when someone opens our eyes negatively. But yet God has called us to be agents and instruments to open people's eyes to the truth. You understand? And so, we, it's, so, it's, it's, so it's so amazing because so much of the things that we are called to do that we'll say, oh, that couldn't be possible, it's clearly understood when you see them in a negative light. Okay? Now, I have a, an eye surgeon in my church. His name is Ming Wang. Ming came to America from China as an atheist. And when he got to Harvard as an atheist, a professor uh, said, Ming, uh, you're an atheist. Look at that car engine. Uh, is that car engine more or less complex than a human brain? And Ming, of course, said, well, if the human brain is far more complex. I mean, the seven system command shuttle computer system, seven computers on it, I've heard, that kind of process and then vote on the response or whatever that works, can come nothing close to what happens in the trillions of connections within our brain. And yet... He was able to see how the complexity of something made has not, can't even come close to the complexity of something that, that, that has been created, obviously, the professor believed by God. And Ming said, my eyes were opened to the reality that God must exist because of that kind of intelligence. You see, many times when I'm talking to people and why I wrote this book was because people say, oh, I need evidence for God. There's no evidence for God. I said, wait a minute, what are you looking for? Many, many times they don't realize they're looking right at evidence, but they don't know how to interpret it. I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking for Stephen Jobs, you wouldn't have found him by breaking down an iPhone. In other words, God's not a particle or a circuit, or you heard going around a year or so ago, they found the God particle. That's this Higgs boson, which is this thing that somehow that if they found that, they, they conjectured, again, it's a theoretical particle that you cannot see. But they know what's there because of its impact on the environment. Isn't it interesting? 
whether you're a realist, if you know this kind of terminology philosophically, a realist and an anti-realist in science, a realist is somebody that believes that the particle is there even though you can't physically measure it because of the impact of what it does on the environment or around it. So we know it's there by its impact. Anti-realist is no, if we can't actually see it, touch it. But, but I hope I'm saying that right. I usually have a physicist on the front row who travels with me who's going, don't say it like that. Um, but anyway, the point is simply this, is, is that we, just because we know how something works doesn't mean because we understand the mechanism that the agent is not needed anymore. I mean, breaking down a Ford motor car and just because I understand every little single part of it doesn't mean Henry Ford was not necessary. Philosophically, it's called the taxicab fallacy. We take a cab where we want to go, and then once we get there, then we dismiss the cab without paying the fare. So we're basically standing in our culture on all of the assumptions that come from a Christian worldview, most of them, right and wrong, good and evil. In fact, when I talk to people that don't believe in God, they're the first one to talk about how evil and how the problem is. So wait a minute, if there is no God, there really is no evil. You can't even make sense of the world we live in without borrowing the Bible's terms to try to describe it. You understand what I'm saying? See, if we, if we are simply a product of random chance, if we came into existence for no reason, then why should we trust ours? You see, but we know that somehow that the universe, which just so happens to mathematically correspond and we can understand it with our brains, what is it that this order that we don't that we didn't invent, we discovered these patterns. Einstein would say it this way, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. Okay, and though he did not believe in the kind of personal God that we would, he yet knew that this was not a product of just random chance. And so here we are trying to do what? We're trying to open people's eyes. But even though they're looking right at the evidence then they can miss it. Like, I mean, have you ever gotten a pocket text? You know, you sit on a, you know, you could tell somebody sat on their phone and it's like four or five different characters and then they, I don't know how they're, they hit send at the same time, but somehow they constructed some things and then boom, hit send. Now, if you've got a test that says, I wish this guy hurries, he better hurry up, they've already kicked, kickoff's already happened. In other words, you got a whole sentence right there. You know that nobody sat in church right here and constructed that but uh, they're, you know, and you got it. So, but what if you got a sentence three billion letters long, ordered and sequenced? That's the information in the human genome, in our, in our DNA. In other words, the best explanation is, is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet if a person doesn't understand that, they can walk right by that. In fact, scientists will say things like, we're willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads, but the caveat is, unless it leads to God. Uh, that same, that same Ming Wang, um, he was telling me how that he, and I was listing actually the other day about how he's actually reverses blindness in certain cases. And a little girl who'd been blinded intentionally by her mother in a certain country so that she would make a better, more attractive, if you will, uh, sympathetic beggar, you know, somebody didn't want to give her money because she's blind. Um, the missionaries that, uh, knew Dr. Wang found her, sent her to America and he said he was able to reverse the blindness in one of the eyes. He said, but even though that the structure of the eye um, functioned, in other words, all of the, uh, the retina, the optic nerve, all that was now repaired, that because she had not seen, that she didn't understand the images that 
that she was taking in, meaning that sight is not just a matter of does this function right. So if you don't know how to interpret the images that you're seeing, then you have to, he said, and we have to explain to her with words what she's seeing. That's why, you know, when people quote from the book of Hesitations, when they say, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, in order to open someone's eyes, it's not like that they're sitting here with a blindfold. It means that they may be looking right at something that should be obvious, but unless somebody can help them and speak the truth to them, then they'll remain blinded to what's right in front of them. And so we have an enterprise. We have been entrusted with this great job of communicating the gospel. Now, I'm from Tennessee. Uh, we have a show down there that I don't know if you watch it up here, but it's called The Andy Griffith Show. If you say names like Andy and Barney and Otis, those are Bible characters, okay, for where I am. Well, this is a longstanding, you know, show and, and, um, the, about a sheriff, and he's got this insecure deputy, Barney Fife, which is a prototype of when you're teaching leadership. Of, we call it the Barney Fife syndrome, somebody that tries to, with a little bit of authority, act like they got, you know, we, Pastor Brett and I are always using, we use that kind of in common language of training somebody how to have a position to be secure. Well, anyway, one time the sheriff left town, and they deputized this other guy named Gomer. Now, Gomer was a gas station attendant, and, uh, and so the, they, they caught, they saw these bank robbers robbing the bank. The sheriff had left town, and now they deputized Gomer, and, and Gomer turns to Barney, the, the, the deputy sheriff. He said, Shazam, we need to call the police. And Barney said, we are the police. So when you look out at the problems in the culture, oh, we need to get some help. What's God going to do? God is going to send you. And guess what he's going to send you to do? He's going to send you with the truth to lovingly, winsomely, but yet straightforwardly help open someone's eyes. That's what happened to me. I was, my brother was an atheist, was in law school. Uh, actually, I had had kind of a little Christianette commitment to God. Uh, had a girl that loved the Lord or kind of loved the Lord when I was in, in, in college. And she said, you know, I remember one time she told me, she said, I don't know we can get married. You don't have a quiet time. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I said, hey, I promise you, I get quiet all the time. I don't talk all the time. I didn't know what she was talking about. But um, she, uh, so next thing you know, I came home and made the mistake of kind of floating out to my atheist brother that I was thinking about being a Christian. Well, he just, you're talking about just dismantling me in a moment. Uh, I, I, some, I said to somebody, I backslid. And after hearing that, they said, well, you didn't have far to slide. If that's, you know, I mean, I didn't really know what I was talking about. And that's what most people do. They have a subjective experience of God, you know, when they're in the youth group or something like that, or they don't really understand their faith. You know, you talk to people and they say, well, you know, as soon as you start, you know, especially people that are very professional in their demeanor, but they'll say things like, you know, well, my religion's a personal thing. That means they haven't discussed it with themselves yet. Uh, it, so, but when you begin to unpack what's down there, they really haven't thought it out. Nor could they e easily explain it to someone else. So I got blown away. But then I walked into a campus meeting, uh, gave my heart really to Christ, began to get discipled. And within a few weeks, I went back for my rematch with my brother. And my brother, knowing that I wasn't going to be such an easy win, Began to study the Bible to find all the contradictions in it. You ever met somebody like that? Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. I'll get out of... Now I say, okay, good, let's talk about it. I'll hold out a Bible. Of course, they've never been that close, so they back away a little bit. 
You know, most people, it's like the Holy Bible. It's so holy, I wouldn't want to read it. You know, and they put it down like that. Don't dare put a coffee, Coca-Cola bottle on it or your feet on it. It's a big family Bible, you know. Anyway, so, but I'll usually agree with them and say, you're right, the Bible does have a lot of contradictions. It contradicts most of what you do. And, uh, and anyway, so, and what, the, you know what the real reason people don't like the Bible is they don't like what they see. When I was in college, I got to work as a bouncer in a bar just for fun, didn't need the money. One of my favorite things was to turn the lights on at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was last call. And watch people who had met one another in the dark. (laughs) Trying to get their phone number back. Because in the dark, we all look good, don't we? I remember the first time my mother, I got grounded or something, and I started, it didn't have anything to do, so I found my mother's makeup mirror. And there was two sides to it. One side was normal and one side was magnified. And I remember turning that mirror over and looking into the magnified side and it had lights all around it. And looking at myself in that mirror and understanding at that moment why women wear makeup. Because I wanted to put some on. I mean, what is it about the lights and the intensity of that that shows us something we don't want to see? And that's what happens when you read the Bible. Something glaringly shows up that we wish that in the dark will go away. So my brother started studying the Bible to find all the contradictions. And when he came home and started laughing about it, my clothes actually began to rip. My my shirt ripped off. Green muscle (laughs) came out of me. Here's what I said to my brother. I said, Ben... It's not what you don't know that's keeping you from God. It's what you do know. You see, the book of Romans gives us a lot of insight. Romans 1 and 2. It's worth studying because one one phrase says this, that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what that means is it's kind of like trying to take a beach ball and hold it under the water. The more you press down to suppress it, the more force will come back at you. And that's why people who've worked so hard to get rid of God in their life get so angry when you bring it up because after all that work, boom, here comes in the opposite direction the very thing they were trying to dismiss. Now, let me commend you. If you're running from God today, if you're running from God and you showed up here at 1 o'clock on a Sunday, you are not doing a good job. I mean, I'm just telling you, I'm assuming that everybody here, you would not be sitting here listening to us if you did not love God. So I got that, okay? So the people that are really doing all that actively are not here trying to figure that. So I'm just saying, but what I'm hoping to equip you in a little ways, in a better way, because you've been equipped as great as any people out there. You've got a great team here doing this. And that's why I've enjoyed walking for over 32 years with this congregation and his people. But just to know that God has not changed his agenda for who he's going to use to touch the planet. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have another people. If he wants to give people to give to a building, it's not like, well, hey, we need to build a building. Well, let's let's just go and find out who he's going to use. Now we're asking, you know, let's go call the police. We are the police. We are the ones. Who's God going to use to touch the inner city? Who's God going to use to touch the suburbs? Who's God going to use to touch the high schools or the universities? And so it's us. So we, ha- we have to quit somehow thinking, well, he's got to be talking about it. God's got to have somebody better than me. I mean, I just am 
couldn't be me. Yeah, it's you. In fact, with a little bit of effort, just a little bit, I tell my sons because I, I, I have a I have a 15-year-old, and now he just turned 18, but my 15-year-old is six foot seven, and I'm, I'm 6'3". He kind of pats me on the head, you know, I'm always saying, quit patting me on the head like that. Don't do that. looks bad. <laughs> of course, I did that to him all his life. He's just paying me back. But anyway, but I, I'll say this to him. I said, look, what I'm telling you might be over your head, but it's not out of your reach. Let me close, unless I'm starting to close. Let me say this. The most eye-opening message you and I have been entrusted with, the most eye-opening message is called the gospel. The average person can't tell you what it is. They could kind of tell you. They can kind of describe it. If you were, it's almost like playing charades, you know, or something else when you're trying to figure out what they say. It'd be like me asking you, if I ask you, can you explain the gospel or what is the gospel? It's, it's like saying, how do you get to New York City? And you go, oh, I love New York. Oh, I love New York. Mm, there's my favorite restaurant up there. Oh, I've got a lot of friends there. But yet, that's not clear enough directions to tell me how to get from here to there. Most of the time when you ask a person, can you explain the gospel? And yet the gospel is the message that is the ultimate truth that comes into our minds and opens our eyes to what? Well, let's just go through it. In fact, I I encourage you, if you do nothing else as a people, do this thing and do this thing, memorize and master the gospel where you can give it. I give a little definition that goes like this. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. Everybody hold your hand out like this. Pretend you're at Starbucks about to try to describe how big a drink you need to get through the afternoon. Real big, okay? Up on top, this is God. Down here is man. Every religion in the world could be kind of boiled down to this one simple mindset of man down here trying to get to God. Fast, pray, do good works. That's really summarizing the essence of religion is man's attempt to get to God. Not faulting that, but just saying, but here's the difference in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God became a man in Christ. You see, when prophets would speak, Isaiah would speak, he would say things like, thus saith the Lord. You do the, he was speaking and acknowledging his words were coming from another source. When Jesus spoke, he didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He said, truly I say to you. Why? Because the Lord was speaking. He spoke to the wind and the waves. Who does that? Who walks up in front of a tomb and says, of Lazarus who'd been, Lazarus had been dead four days and said, roll the stone away. I mean, the disciples, all the, you know, the, the reputation managers are going, Jesus, don't do that. If it doesn't, I mean, you've been doing, you're on a winning streak, but if you call him out, he's been dead four days. This is a different kind of dead. Most of these guys you raised from the dead were like Prince's bride, were mostly dead. He's all the way dead. Four days dead. Why don't we just dismiss the crowd and tonight, you know, we're going to have a prayer meeting and we'll all gather hands and we'll pray for Lazarus. And if we can, we'll listen. If we hear him scratching behind that rock, then we'll move the stone away. And Jesus would not have anything to do with that. He just says, roll the stone away. And then says, Lazarus, come forth. Now he had to say Lazarus. If he'd have just said, come forth, the entire resurrection, when he says, just Lazarus, everybody else stay where you are. Lazarus only come out and Lazarus comes out. You see, now, Pastor Brett or I, if we took and sent one of our sons, if I said to you, well, you know, I did a real heroic thing, I sent my son 
to pay for someone else's sin. No, me sending my son to do a dangerous, if not an ultimate sacrifice, is no real bravery on my part. That's bravery on my son's part. But see, Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was the creator, this God who became a man and offered himself. God becomes man in Christ. And what does he do? He lives the life we should have lived. This is what I want you to memorize. God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived, meaning that he lived perfectly God's moral law. It doesn't mean that we need to walk around in a robe and give out parables. It just means that he perfectly obeyed the moral law of God. Then the next part, he died the death we should have died in our place. So Jesus' death on the cross was not like people say, you hear people going, Jesus died on the cross and took that punishment. Oh, me, that's so sweet. He shouldn't have done that. Oh, like he's some deranged boyfriend trying to show a girl he likes him and likes her. No, that's not, Jesus didn't die just to show you how much he loves you. Now, that's an application. It was a legal problem. Sin had separated us from God. And so he died the death we should have died. If you've ever had a legal problem, you know that man's law cannot be dismissed easily. How much more can, die, can God's law not be dismissed? I mean, you can be forgiven. If you commit a murder, you get in jail and you can be sorry for it. That's good. But you will still, justice will still carry on even though you may be forgiven. Okay? In fact, we have a, a big tendency to minimize our stuff. Like I heard, I heard a guy one time was telling that, you know, I know I committed that murder, but told the judge, think of all the people in this town that I didn't kill. As if somehow that just, see, we have a way of kind of somehow minimizing. But he lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died. And then the third day, here's the rest of the gospel. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he's the son of God. See, just because you think you're God doesn't make you God. I heard of a fellow that was, you know, really had gotten in a bad way and ended up in a, in a, under some heavy psychiatric care. And he kept telling the, the doctors, I, I'm Napoleon, the French general. And they said, how do you know? He said, God told me. Fell in the other bed, raised up and said, I did not. <laughs> so just because you think you're God doesn't make you God. Um, so what does, was Jesus really God? C.S. Lewis would say it this way. Jesus was either a lunatic because he thought he was God. He was either a liar because he knew he was not the son of God, not God, but, you know, started seeing the crowds, all these all-you-can-eat dinners, boat rides, ride out, walk back. Jesus got into that. People were responding. So he said, hey, let's just keep it going. They need a savior. He knew it was wrong, but just carried on. That wouldn't have been a good man. Or as the third leg of his trilemma would be, Jesus was indeed the Lord. You can dismiss him as a lunatic, you know, d d despise him as a liar, or you can fall at his feet and worship him as Lord. But don't, dis don't marginalize him as just a good man. And how do we know? It's because of his resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove. Three days later in Jerusalem. I had the privilege of living in Jerusalem for a while. Never met anybody there that denied that Jesus didn't live or that he hadn't been executed. The question was, what happened three days later? Now, Pastor Britt, come join me on the stage. Let me do this final little thing. I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to land the plane so fast that oxygen masks are going to fall out. Here's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he's the Son of God. And he offers the gift of salvation to everyone who will repent and believe in him.
Now, Pastor Brett, come stand a little bit further away. Now, let me just explain something to you. Again, I've already told you that if you're running from God, you probably didn't come here. So I know this is your hardest to know, but there are people out there that this is how they think. When they've walked away from God, maybe they knew him as a child. When you walk away, your mind tells you, boy, you've just, you know, you're so far away now. You've just done so many bad things, you know, and, and of course, you, then you have thoughts like, well, you know, and all those religious people, they're so hypocritical. If I went back, they just, they're no better than me. But whatever it is, our mind begins to fill in the blank between this gap of God and where we are. And then we think, you know, if I even wanted to get back to him, I'm so far away. But here's what really happens. When you walk away from God and you turn and begin to walk your own way, here's what happens. You know, you know I'm just so far away from God. You know, I've done so many bad things. And if I ever really tried to go back, you know, he probably would just I'd be judged and those hypocrites at church would judge me. See, the word repentance means turn. And the importance of turning is not because God's trying to hurt you or he wants you to be miserable. It's because when you turn, you're back. You see, repentance, repentance is turning from and faith is turning to. I can't turn in faith to Jesus without necessarily turning from everything else. Charles Spurgeon would call it that conversion has got one side of the coin is faith, the other side is repentance. It's like two sides of the same coin. We turn from darkness and see, once I found Jesus, then guess what? I had a lot of mess to make up for, but I, and I had to go back a lot of the bad you know, things I'd done, but at least I had Jesus with me to help talk to people about. And, and a lot of the people that, a lot of the people that didn't like me before, in fact, my childhood enemy, Pastor Brett, who beat me up in my own yard, which isn't right. I suppose there's some kind of law about that. This is like home court advantage. He would sit behind me and thump me on the ear. He, I hated him growing up and I went off, got saved, got in the ministry, went to a university campus and there was my childhood enemy in the crowd. That's him. Preached, and when you know it, at the end of it, I had an altar call. If you want to know Jesus, come down front. He came down front. My childhood enemy. There was some part of me that wanted to slip up to him and go, there's no hope for you. I didn't want to spend eternity with this guy. No, no, no. You, you, it's just over. You've done. You've gone way too far. God told me. Oh, no, I had to hug his neck and pray for him. Listen. There is no person, there is no sin so great that God can't restore you. Bow your head, let me pray. Lord, thank you today for reconciling people. The gospel is the good news. That you've become man in Christ. You lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we should have died in our place. You've been raised from the dead. Three days later, you rose from the dead, proving you're the Son of God. And you offer salvation to everyone here who will turn to you, repent.